Now, I, I want to ask something as we begin, and then I want to ask for uh, your, your grace in two ways. First off, it's this. Who's somebody that you wish you could overhear talking about their life work, their legacy, the thing they're an expert about? Who is it that you'd love to overhear, you know, maybe even talking with somebody else? It's a sports commentator diagnosing how a play works with somebody or a mechanic or maybe it's a, a chef talking with another chef about why a recipe came together. What, what is it that you're like, I'd love to listen to, right? Uh, Johann Sebastian Bach talking about music theory or, uh, I, I don't know, Steve Jobs talking about beauty of technology all rolled into one as it takes over your life and destroys you, right? Like, whatever it is. <laughs> what is it you'd love to hear someone talk about? As you think about that, I, I want to say, as we're in this moment, I apologize. Sometimes my back is going to be turned to you. Uh, I, I don't mean any disrespect by that, and we'll, we'll do the best we can with the setup. But also, I apologize. You're going to have to give me some grace. My voice is just really not making it today. And uh, uh, congestion from a head cold earlier this week is still here and real. And so if you could pardon me, I would be so grateful for that. You know, as we think about somebody we'd love to listen to and learn from, someone we'd love to experience life through their eyes, something I've heard people talk about often is that they'd love to ask God a question. Right, like when I get to heaven one day, have you heard that from somebody? When I get to heaven, I can't wait to ask Jesus, what's up with this? You know, like mosquitoes, can you explain this to us somehow? Uh, or life experience or life event or something that went well or went badly, whatever it might be. We, we think that way sometimes about Jesus. We'd love to hear Jesus or, or to hear Jesus talking to God, the Father, like, What's that conversation sound like? And the awesome thing is, we get to hear one of those conversations in John chapter 17. So I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 17, starting in verse 6, and just keep this open on your lap throughout the sermon today. Admittedly, the way Jesus prays, it's like advanced level praying. He's good at this stuff. I don't think we're surprised. And, and I'll admit, I'm not as good at Jesus is at explaining his own words. And so it might feel like at times we're swimming through peanut butter today because there's a lot here. So you're going to want to keep your Bible open as we look at what's going on. As Jesus prays, he's, he's ultimately recapping some of his ministry to God. We're hearing this personal conversation between the Son and the Father, divine, and it's almost like a shift change. I've experienced that in a hospital room many times. I don't know if you've experienced that where, you know, the nurses outside the hallway are, are saying, okay, here's the deal, room 14, you know, we've, we've done this, we've done this, they've experienced this, that, and the other thing, they're a biter, look out, you know, like they're, they're describing and recapping what's gone on, and, and then they're saying, here's the things we think you ought to do, and you know, go team, and they're out, and the next person's in. They're tag-teaming the situation now. And in some ways, that's exactly what's happening here. Jesus is on the way to the Father, and he's turning over some of these responsibilities to him. And he's, he's running down a recap in a conversation with God the Father. And this is what he says. 
He says in verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours. And yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world. But they are in the world, and I am coming to you. All right, I'm going to stop right there for a minute. Does it feel like Jesus is wandering from thing to thing there? Like, you guys are probably smarter than me, but when I read this, even after a week of paying a lot of attention to it, I still kind of go like, my head is not big enough to keep up with what Jesus is doing here. He's recapping themes and ministry and uh, initiatives that we don't really understand the depths of, that we maybe didn't have a clue about before Jesus was praying about them in this moment. He's going to ask for God to do some things later, but first, he recaps a few things. And I think it's helpful if we attack it this way. If we identify that there's two themes that Jesus is going to string through this entire prayer. And let's trace those through this section. The first theme that he recaps is the possession of the disciples. Did you hear all of that language around who has the disciples? And it's almost like a hat trick situation where it's like, can you follow the disciples? Who's got them now, right? Like, What's, what's happening here? Let, let's look at verse 6 again as Jesus recaps the possession of the disciples. He said, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And, and then if you skip over to verse 9, Jesus says this, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. Okay, so there's, there's a couple things to note as we maybe want to trace this theme through his prayer. Jesus is saying the disciples were always God's possession. The disciples, he's, he's praying in this section about the disciples, and he's saying they are always, they have always been God's. They have always been God's possession. Jesus reveals that the disciples then, and, and really, like the disciples, all of us here today who are in Christ, all believers after this point, they have always been God's before anything happened in God's, in their storyline, in their own storyline. And I think this has to be a little confusing to John or, or to Peter or to the others as they're hearing Jesus praying here. As God's kind of saying, well, they were yours, but they were the world's, but you had them out of the world, and so you gave them to me, and mine are yours. And, you're, and, and John's sitting there going like, you know, I had the distinct experience in life that I was my own. <laughs> like, I've made my own decisions. Like, 
I chose to follow my dad to be a fisherman. Perhaps I maybe I didn't have much of a choice, but like, or, or Matthew's over there going like, I signed up for the tax collector gig. I know, but I made money. But, and then, yeah, sure, Jesus showed up and he said, follow me. But, you know, I always kind of felt like, John's thinking like, I chose to follow him. Like, I, I've always felt like perhaps they could think, as they're hearing Jesus pray, talking about who's got them, they're like, hold up, I thought I had me. Like, who's been running the show all this time if it wasn't me? But Jesus is, is evidently under a different impression. Jesus is saying, God, yours they were. And they are yours. Jesus thinks the disciples were God's possession before he had even entered into their life. And, and this is the first time Jesus has talked about this, but maybe the disciples were slow to pick it up until this point. In John chapter 8, Jesus had said, Whoever is of God hears the words of God. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. You hear that possession language there, being of God? And he had said in John chapter 10, you do not believe because why? You are not of my sheep. This is possession language here. Evidently, people are not of God, or sorry, people are of God before they truly can hear the words of God. Being able to hear the words of God evidently is conditioned on being of God in the first place. Not being of God then becomes why people couldn't hear the voice of God, the truth of God, the gospel of God, Jesus is saying. And he's saying, hey, people who are of my sheep or not, before they believe. Because being of his sheep is why they believe or why they do not believe. Jesus is just revealing in this prayer an element of what we call the sovereign election predestination of God's people. That God is the one who has always had his disciples here in this room, around this upper room table, specifically as Jesus prays, and, and all believers after that. Believers are God's possession before they know who God is in the first place. We're going to talk more about that in a second, but we then see that the disciples, having always been God's possession, were given to Jesus. They were given to Jesus, and we see Jesus was glorified in them. And again, I think it's interesting. We think of Jesus maybe calling disciples in what seemed like a haphazard fashion. Like he's just walking down the beach. There's some bros. Maybe I'll call them. Right? Or like, oh, here's this tax collector in this town. I'm going to call him. It kind of just seems like they happen to come together. But Jesus is saying, no, no. These were given to me by God. It's God giving to me them to me that this group around this table came to exist. Jesus is admitting that as he prays. I think that's wild because... Of all the people in all the world to have ever gotten to take credit for their work, isn't Jesus the guy who ought to be able to take credit for these 11 guys who were left around this table? I mean, he called them, and he did all this work, and he performed all these miracles, and he's getting ready to die for them. Can't Jesus say, like, 
yeah, this is my team. Like, I totally did this. I mean, he's God the Son. And yet God the Son says, as he looks around the table of guys he's served and modeled and cared for and been patient with and smelled for three years, and he goes, God, you gave these to me. I mean, I think about my life or maybe our lives. When we step back from our landscaping, when you step back from your quarterly earnings or you step back from your family when things are going well anyway, don't we tend to go like, I did this. There's that sense of like, look what I've carved out of the world. And yet Jesus looks around the table and then he looks to heaven and he says, I have manifested your name, God, to the people who you gave me. Isn't that exactly like Jesus? Walking in humility, in dependence on God, in dependence of the power of the Spirit, Jesus is glorified in this, the reality that it's God's timeless possession and God's gifting that's at work here. Before these men had belonged to Jesus, they had belonged to God the Father. Before these men had believed in Jesus, they had belonged to God the Father. And then before we had believed in God the Father, we had belonged to him. And, and it's true by extension that before we were drawn to the Son, we belonged to the Father. I, I think of that, and I can't really track with that. And I just think, praise the Lord that this is his work. This is only his doing. And, and the fact is then, because if you are in Christ, because you belong to the Father, you were able to listen to the truth of the word. Because you belong to the Father, that's why you were drawn to Jesus. Because you belong to the Father, you believed. Because you belong to the Father, you were given to Jesus as a God-glorifying gift. That's what we're learning about reality as we listen to Jesus pray. So think about it. Do you believe in Jesus as your Savior alone from your sin and for righteousness before God? Are you a Christian? If so, you have always been God's. Before you existed, you were his. And God gave you to his son, Jesus, in a personal, meaningful way. And Jesus was glorified in receiving you. What does that change about the way you think about who you are? Right? You are no longer Ben Hickson, age, fill in the blank, weight, exists, experience in life and situation and feeling this way about himself, Th those things don't get to define me when what I really ultimately am is someone who in Christ always belonged to God, was given to God the Son, and glorified him in that process. Now, I guess we're sitting this way. Look around the room. Quick, act like you're awake. <laughs> 
Anyone else in this room who's a believer? Anyone else in your home who's a believer? They belong to God before they belong to you or this church. They were given to God the Son, and he was glorified by that. What does that, what does that mean about how we treat them? What does that mean about how we think about them or about how we feel about the fact that they took up our time or that we're called into a unity with them or anything like that? Like, what does that change about that reality? Speaking of belonging to God, though, it's also pretty clear in the light of this prayer that belonging to God means we no longer belong to anyone else, do we? That ultimately belonging to him is our greatest reality. No longer a Hickson, no longer an Ohioan, praise the Lord, no, no longer an American, no longer my background, no, no longer my time in life, no longer my experience, no longer, no longer my successes, no longer my failures. Ultimately, who I am is who I belong to, and ultimately that's God's. Jesus says, I, they were in the world, you called them out of the world, they have always been yours in the world still perhaps, but not of the world. All other identities, all other hopes, all other loves, they come under this greatest belonging. We are his, and we are his alone. Jesus recaps the possession of his disciples, but then he goes through another theme as well. We can trace the theme of the ministry of the word of God. Look again at verse 6. He says, I have manifested your name. We'll talk about that in a second. To a people who you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know the truth that I came from you. And they believed that you sent me. Jesus talks about the word, the word, the word, over and over and over and over again here. What is he talking about? What is this word? Well, especially in, in John's writing, and really throughout Scripture, we can, we can understand the word to really refer to, to ultimately mean three specific things, or three general things. First, personally... The word is Jesus. The word is Jesus, the incarnate son of God. Fully human, fully God. The word made flesh and dwelling among us. And the word is also Jesus. And then, specifically, the word is the gospel. The word is the gospel. What Jesus came then to live and to do and to provide. And then believing the word, we, we ultimately are believing that he died in our place for our sins. And then generally the word is the Bible, the revealed written word of God, the things Jesus did and spoke and then led his followers to write, carried along by the Spirit. That is the word. And Jesus, as he prays, recaps the ministry of the word. He says, look at especially at verse 8, 
I have given them the words that you gave me. In this thread of the word, we see that the word was God's. The word was God's. It's his word. It's his truth. It's his name and nature and character that are revealed, that Jesus manifests. That's why he says, I've manifested your name. I have revealed the truth about who you are, Jesus is saying. And the word, being God's, was then given to Jesus. In his submission to the Father and in his dependence on the Spirit, Jesus listened and shared only what the Father had for him to share, only the truth that was God's, that God wanted him to communicate. Jesus had said this was going to be his kind of way of operating in John chapter 12. He said, I have not spoken with my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say? What to speak? And I know his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So, so Jesus communicates only the words, only the truth God had for him to communicate. The word was given to Jesus. The word was God's. And then the word was given to disciples. Jesus manifested and spoke and lived this truth out to those the Father had given him. And I think we have to pause at this point and realize then something that a lot of people in our world try to misunderstand on purpose. They try to feel like, they try to argue away by saying, well, Jesus was real. He was a historical person. He was a great guy. He was a moral teacher. His teachings changed the world. There was a lot of great things about Jesus, but that's all he was. And the way Jesus prays here, we ought to beg to differ. Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. He came to be the revealed word of God and to speak the true words of God. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. That's who Jesus is. Jesus gave the words of God to his disciples and then, of course, in participation with the Spirit, the disciples shared and revealed that word to us today. We have it in their writings and the accounts of what happened in the New Testament and completed with the rest of Scripture, what we call now today our Bibles. That's what God has given to us through the revealed word of God that Jesus here in this upper room is talking to God about. God gave us his true word. And we're going to see later in his prayer that it, he uses it to change us, to sanctify us. That's what God gave us through Jesus. Life in God through his life and sacrifice. Truth in the word through his word. I think about, I think about a joke that you you all know, we've all heard, other times, depending on who says it, it's either a rabbi or it's a priest or it's a pastor. And they're afloat, lost at sea, right? Sure to drown. And then what happens? A fishing boat pulls up and they offer to rescue him. They say, hey, we're here to rescue you. And the, the pastor says, I have faith that God will save me. No thanks. 
And so the fishing boat moves along, and then what comes next? A, a big container cargo ship. And, and they pull up alongside and say, hey, we're here to save you. And, and what's the pastor say? Uh, I, I have faith that God will save me. And, and then off the ship goes, and then a helicopter comes along, and, and they blast, hey, we're your last chance. We're your last rescue. Can we pull you aboard? And he says, no, thanks. I have, what, faith that God will save me. And, and then, of course, what happens? He drowns. He drowns, and he goes to heaven as the joke goes, and, and he asks God, you know, he's kind of disappointed, like, hey, I had faith that you would save me. Like, what gives? Why didn't you save me? We all know this. We all, we, you've all heard this. What, what is it that God says to him? I sent a boat and a ship and a helicopter. What more did you want me to do? At this point, I assumed you wanted to come home, <laughs> you know. God had sent in that joke rescue to this man who didn't use it. I've heard that joke used many ways, creatively, but today I want want to use it to ask us this. God has sent us his word. Are we using it? Are we using it? Are, Are we reading it? Do we know it? Do we cherish it? In a world with many messages and many identities, believers must look to God alone, and we do that by looking through the Word of God. We must know it and teach it and honor it and submit to it and obey it and treasure it because it's the revelation of the heart of God himself to us. This is how God draws those that are his. And this is what Jesus reveals happened through the ministry of the word. The disciples believed that word, he says. They believed that word, and he goes about it several ways. They kept your word. They know that everything you've given me is from you, verse 7. Verse 8, they've received them and have come to know the truth that I came for you. They have believed that you sent me. This is the ministry of the word of God at work, believing the gospel, believing the revealed truth about who God is and his divine nature. Through his prayer, Jesus is recapping these threads, his possession of the disciples, the ministry of the word of God and what it's up to. But then he moves along and he asks Jesus, Jesus asks God for for three things. He he asks first, we'll see, for our security. And we can follow along in verse 11 as he does that. He starts by saying, almost to cue up this request section, Holy Father, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy, my joy, fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus asks for our security here. And he'll ask for our sanctification and that we be sent in a moment. But he asks God, God, keep them 
in your name. Keep them in your name. He's saying keep them in yourself. Keep them in the identity they have in you. Keep them in salvation. Jesus is asking for the perseverance of their faith that they be protected spiritually in God. We believe that Scripture teaches that anyone who is genuinely in God, in Christ, can never lose that identity they have with him. They are eternally secure in their salvation. And here we see Jesus praying about and in line with that reality. If you are genuinely God's possessions, God will not fumble. Jesus had been guarding these disciples spiritually. He says, when I was with them, verse 12, when I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you had given me. I have guarded them. In his ministry, Jesus had shepherded them into faith, shepherded them into faith, and then he had protected them in it. He had kept them in it. And he acknowledges, like, hey, I, I realize Judas seems like he's off the team. And he was. But, but he acknowledges, this wasn't like, oh, everybody gets their one miss. You know, he says, that was always the plan. This was according to Scripture. I have a perfect record here. And so it can be like, well, Jesus, though, you're saying you're going away. Who is going to protect us now? And Jesus is saying, I have been protecting them perfectly. God, would you continue to perfectly protect them. And he clarifies the security he's asking for in verse 15. What's he say? I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He's letting us know he doesn't mean that he wants these disciples protected from hatred or opposition in the world, that he doesn't want the hardships that are in route to be rerouted. That's not what he's asking God for. He's asking God to spiritually preserve them from the evil one. He's asking God that their faith not be lost. Keep them in you, Holy Father. Keep them from him, the evil one. Isn't that our real enemy then, after all? Our real enemy isn't a life that is less than ideal. Our real enemy is the evil one, is the Sin in our lives, the captain of that sin being Satan himself in that sense. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, right? But against rulers and against authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That is our fight. And Jesus prays, keep them from that evil. That, he says, here's the purpose that they may be one, even as we are one. You know, Jesus wanted them to be kept so they could be one like God is one. I could think of other first things to come to mind for Jesus to want to protect us for. I, in some ways, would prefer that Jesus say, God, keep them from the evil one so they can be awesome. So they can have a good time. You're like, I, I can think of things. Jesus, though, says, so they can be one as we are one. 
To Jesus, continuing in God, protection had an outcome, unity among believers. To participate in the family of God in a mutual unity, Jesus reveals here, is to experience a sample of what the experience of the Godhead is like. Do you want to know what the experience of being God is? It's a unity. It's a community. It's a constant on the same team and page and mission. So I have to ask. That's what God's wanting his believers to know. What it's like to be God in a sense. Is that what it feels like for you to be a part of Bethel Church? Do you feel like, hey, I'm a part of Bethel Church. I know a lot about what it's like to be God. Has that been your church experience over the years? However God has led you? We probably don't hit the bar quite as well as we want to as we together in Christ, do we? It certainly won't be if attending is all we do. Because please know if you are in Christ, you are placed and prayed by Jesus into a missional community, not a weekend appointment. That's what he does. God places us, and Jesus here is praying us into a missional community in unity, not a weekend appointment that we all come to and leave from. Feel a little bit better, except the days they make us sit in a circle, right? Like, more on unity, though, when we finish up this chapter in a few weeks at our outdoor service. But to that end, Jesus asked the Father also, not only for our security, but for our sanctification. In verse 16, he says this, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. What does he mean when he says sanctify them? Sanctify them. Sanctify means to make holy, to set apart, to reserve for a particular purpose. I don't know, it might be at your house today, you're eating with sanctified dishes. Is that your Sunday? Do you break out china ever in your house? Or does it die in a cupboard somewhere forever? It dies in a cupboard in our house. We, we never use it. But maybe a better picture is sanctified lumber, the lumber power, like this this wood is really good. This is straight. It's true. There's no knots. I'm using this for furniture versus this other, which is, is gnarly and, and twisted, and uh, I don't even want to use it. If I do, it's in a wall somewhere, right? Like God says, I take people who are broken. I make them new. They are set aside and holy for a purpose. And Jesus is praying here, sanctify them. That's what God is supposed to be doing in Jesus' mind. And how are we sanctified? He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The method for our sanctification, according to Jesus in this prayer then, is the word of God. So again, the theme of the word gets woven into this prayer. We're set apart to God. We're made like him through the ministry of the truth of the word. You know the word, it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of the soul and the spirit. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Not a truth, not my truth. Sanctify them in the 
truth. Your word is truth. You know, guys, let's face it. We probably will always live in a cultural era where a concept of truth is going to be felt as an affront. Where what I want for me is seen as the highest good any other objective reality will be felt like, will feel like opposition to others. That's probably the reality for us. But Jesus still prays that for us. There's nothing confusing in his words here. He's saying the word of God is our source of truth and our way to know Jesus and his gospel. And we know it is active in its work, making us like God and preparing us for his purposes. And asking for our sanctification, Jesus is making it clear that the true word of God was going to be the way we could and should know him. And Jesus prayed, knowing his own role in that process as well. He says in verse 19, For their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. For their sake I, what? For their sake I concentrate, consecrate myself. Consecrate. He's using the same word in Greek that he used when he says sanctified. Hagiatso. Holify is maybe the most direct English translation. He's saying, I'm going to holify myself. For their sake, I holify myself, that they also may be holified. He's saying the means of our sanctification is going to be his work for us on the cross. His dying in our place for our sins, he's setting himself aside for that specific mission so that when we repent and believe in him, we can be holified. No Jesus, evidently. No salvation. We needed that mediator. We needed that redeemer. Someone to satisfy the demands of justice on our behalf and to give us his righteousness. And Jesus talked to God in this moment about his willingness to go in our place for our sins. And he did it. He died in our place for our sins. Therefore, we can know him. And therefore, more people need to know him. He prays that we be sent. In verse 18, he says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. He's saying, it was my mission, it's now their mission. And it was their mission, those disciples, and now it's your mission, all believers across all time, that every nation and every tongue and every people may know Jesus as Lord. You know, we are here today worshiping God because Jesus' prayer was answered. And more people will know God one day because tomorrow... He used you to answer that prayer. And the next day, and the next day, we have invited, been invited into his mission. This is the, the 
bulk of what Jesus communicates in this section of his prayer. There's a lot more we could get into, but I do just want to draw our attention back to one, one verse that we skipped over really in the meantime. Would you look with me at verse 13? Verse 13 says this, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my what? that they may have my joy. These things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus prays these things out loud in this moment because he wants us to enjoy and experience what he enjoys and experiences. Think about this. Jesus almost never prayed in a way we know what he prayed about. He was always on a mountain somewhere. He was always kind of in secluded places. But here he prays out loud around his disciples. Why? I guess in part because he wanted them to know the joy he had in the Heavenly Father. And so he's asking for gospel belief and security and sanctification and mission and unity in God's church in this prayer because he wants us to know the same joy that he has in God the Father. So I guess we ought to ask ourselves today, how do you feel when you are with God the Father? How do you feel when you're with God? And of course, I know God, God is everywhere all the time. We're never not with him, but when we are made aware of him, when we're turning our attention to him, when we are praying, when you're invited into God's presence by the Holy Spirit's conviction, what is the sense you have to be with him? I mean, I can imagine, is it a negative emotion? Is it, is it shame? Is it embarrassment? Is it guilt? Is it a sense of, I, I'm kind of hiding from that happening in the first place, Ben. I, I'm trying to avoid that most of the time. That's why I fill my life and fill my schedule and drown them out. Did you know you can have the same joy before God that Jesus does? And that's what Jesus is asking for. Here, he prayed for our gospel belief and his own sanctified sacrifice and our holification and the work of the truth of the word and our perfect security and us becoming a unified people. He prayed for all of that all so that we could go before God each and every day and each and every moment and only know joy. Because without his work, without his sacrifice, without the sanctification of the word of truth, and without our protection, and without the unity he invites us into in the body of Christ, we couldn't know God. We would only know his wrath. But then, because of all of this, Jesus looks in us and sees the work of Jesus, the rightness of Jesus, the family he's adopted us into, the riches of his grace poured out on us, and that's what he sees every time when he sees you. And so any other experience you ever have as you interact with God as a believer is either the conviction of the Spirit back into that joy or a lie about it in the meantime. All you need to know when you know God as you interact with him is joy. That's his predisposition towards you. That's how Jesus prayed here today. And if that's how Jesus prayed then, 
in that upper room, we can be sure that in the same way Jesus continues to pray for us at the Father's right hand in heaven. Perhaps asking, hey, God, people in this room, keep them. Protect them and sanctify them and send them. Aren't we glad Jesus is a prayer warrior? Aren't we glad Jesus prayed? And I know. We don't always know what to pray for as we ought. To borrow a Romans 8 kind of a thought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And yes, Christ Jesus is interceding for us. More than that, he died and was raised and is at the right hand of God to pray for us. Yes, therefore, in all these things, we are what? More than conquerors through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Because God the Father has always had you. He's always had you, possessed you, believer. And he guards and he keeps you powerfully in the faith. And he's given you to his son, Jesus who he set apart to be our effective redeemer, that we may be right before him once and for all, and made more like him through the word of God so that we could be sent into the world, knowing he has more to keep. Knowing he has more to keep. I'm grateful for that God. I'd like to talk to him right now as we close. Heavenly Father, We thank you. We praise you for the work that you've done. For the way that you have had your people forever. For the way that you have accomplished for us our rescue. We're humbled when we realize that we had nothing at all to do with it. And we can't imagine that what we get to know before you today then is joy. God, would you continue to give us confidence in knowing we are kept in you. We are sanctified through your truth, and we are sent on your mission. Would you give us joy in that work, Father? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Church, I'd like to ask you to stand with me here today as we get ready to leave. I'd like to invite you to continue to step into being the church that God has united us to in any kind of way today. Maybe that's praying with someone around you or praying with a family member up front here in the middle of the room here before you go today. And we encourage you and look forward to opportunities to continue to be sanctified by the Word of God through our ongoing gatherings, communities, and studies throughout the summer. But hey, as we go, would you receive this benediction? May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely come.